First, he wasn't going. Then he was maybe going. Now he's there. Rishi Sunak has given his speech to COP27. I'm not sure it blew the room away, but we will be talking about it and all the latest from the very important COP27 in Egypt. Also tonight, we're talking, I mean, it seems like we're going to get austerity on steroids from Jeremy Hunt. And we have some nonsense from both Keir Starmer and Gavin Williamson. To discuss it all, I'm joined by someone who won't be speaking nonsense tonight, Ash Sarkar. I don't know where you got this whole not talking nonsense thing from, Michael. You should be familiar with my work by now. And if you expect me not to chat absolute crud, then you've got the wrong co-host, babe. You know, I thought getting you on every episode of Tisky last week maybe would have hammered some discipline into you, but has that not, has that not happened yet? No, man. I mean, not only did it not hammer any discipline in me, it's put me in daily fear for my life. I don't know how you do that job. There's so much pressure. Fox is a very hard task mistress also, I will say. Fox does make you work hard, I have to say, but I think the, the, the outcome is, is, is for the best. It's a bargain I am willing to accept. After initially snubbing the COP27 negotiations in Egypt, Rishi Sunak has mounted a U-turn and taken a plane to Sharm el-Sheikh. This afternoon, he said this to the UN Climate Conference. And for our part, the UK, which was the first major economy in the world to legislate for net zero, will fulfill our ambitious commitment to reduce emissions by at least 68% by 2030. And because there is no solution to climate change without protecting and restoring nature, in Glasgow, more than 140 countries, which are home to over 90% of the world's forests, made a historic promise to halt and reverse forest loss and land degradation by the end of this decade. And just this afternoon, I co-hosted the first meeting of the Forests and Climate Leaders Partnership to ensure this is delivered. Central to all our efforts is honouring our promises on climate finance. I know that for many, finances are tough right now. The pandemic all but broke the global economy. And before coming here today, I spent last week working on the difficult decisions needed to ensure confidence and economic stability in my own country. But I can tell you today that the United Kingdom is delivering on our commitment of £11.6 billion. And as part of this, we will now triple our funding on adaptation to £1.5 billion by 2025. Sunak has also pledged £65 million for the UN Clean Energy Innovation Facility, which provides grants to researchers and scientists in developing countries working on clean technologies. And he committed the UK to providing £90 million for conservation in the Congo Basin rainforest and £65 million to support indigenous and local communities. But politicians at home have criticised Sunak for a failure to provide climate leadership. There's a vacuum of leadership here. And, and there is a chance, you know, there is a chance for Britain to lead. We have a commitment mm. to get to zero carbon power by 2030 in Britain. That's Labour's commitment. Mm. That will be a world... Uncut, yeah. Why should our viewers have any faith in this process at all? What difference does it make that politicians like you are getting on a plane to go and talk to each other and to talk to experts when because, last year's results didn't? Because we've got, because we've got to work with others to move forward because we've got to lead and because there is an opportunity, despite, you know, you can look at it as glass half full or glass mm. half empty, but despite all of the problems and all of the challenges, countries are moving. Now, they're not moving nearly fast enough, mm. but the point of leadership, the point of building alliances, which is what we would be doing, is to get others to come with you. And, and we can do that, but, but we've got to do the right thing at home. You can't, you it, can't, I've been at these summits, Laura. And if you go, as Britain is going to be doing and saying, uh, Rishi Sunak, we want to lead. And then people say, but you've got an onshore wind ban. That's against clean power. You're going hell for leather for new fossil fuel licenses. Well, that's inconsistent. You're reneging on your commitments that you made in Glasgow in terms of helping poorer countries. That's not leadership. And you weren't even thinking you were going to go. Of course, now the role of COP host has been passed on by the UK. We are just one among many small players in climate negotiations. And to get the bigger picture of what's at stake at COP27, I spoke earlier to Simon Lewis. Simon is Professor of Global Change Science at UCL and is in Egypt advising two Central African governments during the negotiations. I started by asking him what was the big narrative around this COP. Well, there's an official big story, which is this is the implementation COP. So the last one was to finish in Glasgow, was to finish the rule book of, of Paris, all the 
rules and regulations to get implement the Paris Agreement, and this is about actually implementing it. But there's a there's another big issue that's on the table, and the jar and the jargon is called loss and damage, and this is global South countries wanting funds for when there's a big flood or a hurricane or something that they weren't expecting and is caused by climate change and has been caused by the historical pollution of rich countries, that they should pay for those damages. And that's anathema to rich countries who don't want to accept any responsibility. And what's happened at this COP is there was a big tussle in the beginning, for almost two days before it, before it really got going, uh, to get that on the agenda. And there's some fudge words, but it is on the agenda after some countries have been talking about this for for, uh, almost 20 years. You're advising two Central African governments at this COP. Is that really their big priority here, this money for for loss and damage from climate change? The spearhead of the loss and damage has been the most vulnerable countries, and particularly the small island states, where this is an existential crisis. For the Central African governments, they want much more funding for adaptation. For, for being able to adjust their economies to, to, to thrive, not just survive, but to thrive as we see these climate impacts mount. So on the one hand, we've got getting emissions down as fast as possible, halving them by 2030 and eliminating them by 2050 to keep warming to 1.5 degrees C. They should say that we're miles off target for that. And then to adapt to those climate impacts. And they want more funding for adaptation, which has been far down the list of things compared to mitigation, compared to cutting emissions. And let's talk about cutting emissions, because as far as I understand, you know, the Paris process, governments bring their own non-binding commitments, and then we add them all together and see what trajectory we're on. Now, at the end of the, the Glasgow summit, all the countries have put forward their commitments, and we were still way above 1.5 degrees and sort of the fudge at the end of the conference was to say, okay, let's come back with more ambitious ones next year. Potentially that will get us to 1.5. How, how much more ambitious have people been this time around? Does that strategy seem to have paid off? Have people come forward with more ambitious um, commitments and pledges, which really could keep us um, to a level which is non-catastrophic? That strategy is, has largely failed because out of uh, you know nearly 200 countries, only 29 have submitted additional uh, new non-binding targets. So that, that's not really changed the situation very much. might have reduced global emissions. It might reduce temperatures by around 0.1, outside 0.2 degrees, sea warming by 2100. Um, so what we have now is warming based on current pledges is, a, is around 2.5 or 2.6, 2.7 degrees there was this warming above pre-industrial levels. Not as bad as if you'd have asked me this 10 years ago when I'd have been saying four degrees, but still, I mean, really going to be shocking climate impacts from that level of warming. But 90% of the world's economies are now covered by net zero pledges by countries. And if all of those pledges were met, then we might be down to only like 1.7 degrees. So there's another reason why we kind of people are talking about this is implementation. We've got to go past these lofty goals and get to the the nitty-gritty of what are the policies to get different sectors off fossil fuels, whether that's transport, agriculture, electricity, and have those alternatives rolled out so that the green alternative is is the economically viable and 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 the, the cost effective one. And one of the, I suppose, unique things about the UN climate process is that every country in the world is involved, every country in the world attends. Now, a big change we've had since the last time this happened, since COP26 in Glasgow, is there is now a major war and serious geostrategic sort of conflict between two major powers, Russia and and America, vis-a-vis Russia's war on Ukraine. What impact is that having on the talks? Are, Are the US and Russian delegations sort of talking about climate? Have they decided that it's okay to to sort of ring fence that issue and say, we won't let the rest of our geopolitical disputes come into this? It's a big difference, the, the, the Russian war in Ukraine. It's permeating all of the talks because it's increased fuel prices, fossil fuel prices, which has had led to a cost of living crisis 
across the world. It's led to increased food prices, which has been really important in the, in the global south. And their response, interest rate rises, mean that uh, people's debt and country debt is increasing. So everything is more fraught because of this war. It's kind of remarkable that the climate space continues with all of these countries involved, despite all of their differences and geopolitical interests, to get round the table and discuss this really uh, crucial issue. Uh, so it's surprising how little Russia being in the room affects the whole process, even though the economic impacts are felt throughout the process, if that makes sense. And you mentioned that the rising cost of oil, rising cost of fossil fuels in, in general, I mean, gas more than anything. In a way, is that a good thing? Is that speeding up the transition away from fossil fuels? Or I suppose on, on the flip side, you've got Western countries who feel that they have to invest in, in new fossil fuel sources. But does, does the total use of fossil fuels decline because of this geopolitical struggle, potentially? So in terms of the fossil fuel transition, there's a report out from the International Energy Agency saying that overall, these really high oil and gas prices will speed up the transition. And on the flip side, in the short term, we're seeing Europe scramble for more gas, particularly over this winter. Um, and some countries saying, oh, we should get a, a slice of that action and we should develop new gas resources to sell to this gap in the market that was previous there from Russian oil, oil and gas. But overall, it seems that these high prices and this like real shock to the system when there is now alternatives that are cheaper than fossil fuels, will speed up that transition. That was Simon Lewis speaking to me from COP27. Let's go straight to our next story. Ever since Jeremy Hunt became Chancellor of the Exchequer, we've been told that when it comes to tax and spending, the government will have to make, quote, difficult decisions. We're taking the difficult decisions. Difficult decisions. Taking many difficult decisions. Decisions of eye-watering difficulty. That, of course, is code for austerity. And with the government's autumn budget statement just days away, austerity was a topic that Sky's Sophie Rich put to Cabinet Office Minister Oliver Dowden. Should we be bracing ourselves for a return to austerity? Well, look, we face very difficult times as a country, not least because of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine and as we recover from COVID. And at the heart of that, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, have put restoring stability. And that's absolutely essential because, for example, if we allow inflation to get out of control, mortgage rates to get out of control, everyone is going to suffer and the poorest will suffer the worst. So it's right that we take difficult decisions. I have to say to, to you and your viewers, there will be, unfortunately, more significant difficult decisions to come in the autumn statement the week after next. But at the same time, at the heart of all of that, as the Prime Minister demonstrated during COVID, compassion is at the heart of, of what he's doing and protecting the most vulnerable. And I think those are the parameters of that autumn statement. It is about difficult decisions, but also protecting the most vulnerable. Strong, stable, difficult decisions in the national interest. That was Dowden being pretty tight-lipped on the details of those difficult decisions, but just how compassionate is the budget likely to be? Several newspapers have now reported on leaked drafts of the Treasury's plans, and it seems that not only is austerity back, it's more extreme than ever. The Guardian has reported this. Early drafts of the statement contain plans for up to £35 billion of spending cuts and up to £25 billion of tax rises, which are likely to include freezing income tax thresholds and targeting dividend tax relief. A Whitehall source said the figures remained estimates and subject to change, but that Hunt, the Chancellor, told an all-staff meeting he was looking for measures totalling at least £50 to £60 billion. Now, it's worth putting some of these figures in context. The first Tory austerity programme kicked off under David Cameron and George Osborne in 2010. And between 2010 and 2013, the government cut a cumulative £14.3 billion a year from public spending compared with 2009 to 2010. By the end of 2018, when Theresa May announced that austerity was over, that figure had risen to £30 billion per year. Now, you'll be well aware of the catastrophic pain those cuts caused, but they're still £5 billion less than what Hunt allegedly plans to take now. So why is the government looking to gain more from cuts than through taxes? 
Here's Sophie Ridge and Oliver Dowden again. Previously with austerity, we saw the focus on spending cuts, but it is right, it seems, from what you've and others have said, that actually tax rises are going to form a bigger part than previously. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say as between tax versus spending cuts, we've got to, unfortunately because of the difficult decisions that we have to take, we're going to have to take difficult decisions on both tax and spending. But of course, as Conservatives, and I know that the, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor share this view with me, we need to bear down on spending first and uh, eliminate waste, excessive spending, and only go to tax rises if it's a last resort. But given the difficulty of the public finances, there is likely to be a mix of the two. Uh, and what, can you give us any, uh, you know, what, what kind of that mix may be? 50-50? Or is 80-20 in favour of spending I, I think cuts it's, under George it's not, uh, it's not appropriate okay. to get into the, the, the detail of that balance. And indeed, those conversations are ongoing between the Prime Minister Understood. and the Chancellor. The decisions are so difficult, he couldn't possibly be expected to provide any details. Now, of course, that was just classic Tory ideology. Only raise taxes once you've trimmed the state to the bone. And unlike Cameron and Osborne, Sunak and Hunt are considering making those cuts right across the board. As the Times reports, the scale of the cut suggests Sunak could increase benefits in line with earnings rather than inflation, which would save the government £5 billion a year, but see millions of people face real-terms benefits cuts. Another contentious option would be to break the triple lock on increases in the state pension. Sunak is said to be reluctant to do so because pensioners are unable to boost their incomes through other means. Given that inflation is now outstripping wage rises, pegging benefits to earnings will see very real losses for those people who rely on them. This graph from the BBC shows what a household on universal credit and with no other earnings could expect per year from April. If universal credit only rises with earnings, a family of four will lose £650 in income, a single parent about £400 and a single adult just under £200. Also on the table are pensions, which the Tories normally never touch. The triple lock guarantees that state pensions go up every year in line with whichever of these is highest, inflation's earnings or 2.5%. And while inflation is so high, breaking the triple lock means going with one of the lower measures. So that's how the poorest people and those who are reliant on pensions and benefits are set to suffer. What about the rich? Here's Oliver Dowden again. Should most of us expect to be paying more tax? Well, I think we're going to have to face uh, difficult decisions both on the, the tax side, we, we haven't got to the end of the difficult decisions there, and difficult decisions on the spending side. Now, of course, in terms of the, the specific decisions that will be made, that conversation is ongoing between the, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, and you wouldn't expect any government minister to comment before the, the autumn statement. Uh, I know you'll say you, you can't comment. Sunday Telegraph saying the Chancellor is looking at reducing pension tax relief for higher earners. Is that part of the discussion? Well, Sophie, you, you've, you've been around these events many times as I have been. There's an awful lot of speculation in, in the newspapers. Some of it's correct, some of it's not correct. Uh, I can't go into any individual uh, stories, but what I can say is it is the case there will be difficult decisions in that, that, that autumn statement. Tax relief on pensions is something that benefits wealthier people with higher rate taxpayers benefiting the most. But don't worry, it turns out that those big earners aren't likely to be stung much after all. The Times has reported this. Sunak is expected to press ahead with several stealth taxes, including freezing income tax thresholds until 2027 to 28, so more people are dragged into paying the higher rate. He is also likely to freeze the pensions lifetime allowance for two more years. However, proposals to cut tax relief on pensions contributions are unlikely to go ahead after being deemed too difficult. I think that means too politically difficult. What doesn't look set to rise is also um, the amount of tax paid by high earners, and there's no word on capital gains tax either, despite advice from tax experts. As The Guardian reports, capital gains has the potential to bring in billions if it were changed to match income tax rates. Such a change was the top recommendation of the Office of Tax Simplification in 2020, but it was rejected by Rishi Sunak last year when he was Chancellor. Um, I wonder why someone worth £730 million pounds um, wouldn't like the idea of increasing capital gains tax. Now, capital gains, that's what you make not via work, but via your investments. So this is particularly the way that rich people make money. At the moment, you get charged lower um, for capital gains than you do for income for, for wage work. So a completely bizarre situation. He doesn't want to change it. Ash, the Bank of England expects the UK will be in recession until mid-2024. 
what do you make of the decision, it seems, to massively cut spending in that context? Can I just say something which is maybe petty, but every time I hear Jeremy Hunt or Oliver Dowden talk about these difficult decisions that they're having to make through no fault of their own, I just want to scream at them, we're only in this mess because your party, frankly, elected an idiot to be prime minister. We're paying an idiot premium on borrowing simply because what Liz Trust tried to do is shove through a load of unfunded tax cuts without any forecasting from the OBR and borrowing to do so. It, it, it was total foolishness, recklessness, and it was driven by neoliberal ideology, quite frankly. And, and now they're telling us that the books have to be balanced on the backs of the people when it's their party who got us into this mess in the first place. And I think that that's something which we should never let the conservatives forget, that they are the ones who made this mess. A lot of this is self-inflicted and, you know, they should have to wear the little cone of shame on their heads everywhere they go. As for the, the economic strategy of cut spending in order to deal with a black hole in the public finances. Well, one, we have a case study of what happens to a country if you do that for a sustained period of time. And if specifically you cut public spending during a recession, because that's exactly what George Osborne did. And what we ended up with was a deeper recession and a slower recovery and also some really expensive problems such as NHS wait times, such as council services being in disarray, that that we haven't gotten around to fixing. And now we're in another economic crisis. Those are exactly the budgets which are going to be cut again. So we've got a case study for enacting exactly that kind of economic plan. And it, it led to disaster. Um, and I think you're really right to highlight the difference in talking about things like cutting state pension provision and cutting benefits versus the sort of conversation that's happening around the taxation of wealth. Because there's actually lots of sources of taxation where you're shifting the burden onto wealth away from wages and you're, you're, you're laser targeting people who've got a lot of wealth and who've been able to amass it over the past 12 years because that's been a decade of economic policies which benefit them. So one is, of course, you can bring capital gains tax in line with income tax. But another one you can do is bring inheritance tax in line with capital gains tax because it's kind of nuts that if I had, say, an investment, one day I'd have to pay X amount of tax because it's capital gains. But then if the next day I died and I wanted to you know, hand it over to you know, my kids or you know, grandkids or whatever, then, then I wouldn't be paying tax on that investment. So bringing inheritance tax up in line with capital gains tax would be another way in which you can, you can make our tax system more rational and a lot more fair. Um, you could start thinking about how you can unlock some of that wealth, which is, you know, hoarded in properties, which have appreciated a huge amount in value over the past 12 years, often at the expense of people who want to find a more stable, secure housing situation, whether that's through renting on a more preferable contract or whether it's, of course, you know, buying a first property. There are really regressive ways to do property taxes. And you see that a lot in cities in the United States where you have a system of property taxes which just proportionately impact low-income families who have properties in areas which are gentrifying and property taxes can be really bad. But what you can do is set a threshold for property tax at a million, two million. So again, it means you're targeting people who've got assets which have appreciated an awful lot in you know the past few decades. And that's not the result of work that's not an earned appreciation it's just because of you know the luck of the draw when it comes to the state of the economy and are more likely to have the kind of income which means that they could service a property tax which is linked to the value of their home these are all things that a government could do and the fact that a government wouldn't be doing it is out of political choice not out of necessity it's funny isn't it because right wingers always say you know the, the argument against high taxes is that it disincentivizes people working hard we have a funny system in this country whereby the most you get taxed is when you work, then you get taxed less if it's investments, and you get taxed even less if you inherited it. it. It seems to me to be, you know, the less you have to do with the amount of money or, or with the money that's coming in, you know, the, the less it has to do with your effort, because obviously 
going to work, that's the hardest thing to do. Investing in something, you know, at least you probably have to think about it. Inheriting something, you don't even have to think about it. And and, and so the harder you have to work, the more your the more your income gets taxed. Seems very bizarre to me. We've got more stories for you coming up tonight. But first, we should remind everyone that at Navarra Media, we are funded by you. And one way you can support us is by signing up to be a supporter at navarramedia.com slash support. That's I think the, the most important way, that's what really keeps us going. But you can also support us by visiting the Navarra Media merch store, which has just had a full restock of our most popular lines. Next story. Keir Starmer has made some controversial comments on NHS workers this weekend. Here he is speaking on the Sunday show on BBC Scotland. We don't want open borders. Um, freedom of movement has gone and it's not coming back. So that means fair rules, firm rules, a points-based system. What I would like to see is the numbers go down in some areas. I think we're recruiting too many people from overseas into, for example, the health service. But on the other hand, if we need high-skilled people in innovation, in tech, to set up factories, etc., then I would encourage that. So uh, I don't think there's an overall number here. Some areas we need to go down, other areas we need to go up. Well, there is a valid point that Keir Starmer is making there. The UK saves money by capping the number of people able to train as doctors and by limiting the bursaries available to nurses. And then we actively recruit doctors and nurses from poorer countries, providing a drain on their health services. But framing the problem as the migrants who come to work in the NHS, as opposed to our failure to train people, is dangerous. And that's something we all used to recognise when it was someone else speaking. So this is a headline from during the 2019 general election. ITV election debate. Nigel Farage says it's terrible so many migrants work in NHS. The Brexit party leader said more Brits should be training as nurses and doctors, but other panellists defended the role migrants play. Now, what Nigel Farage said there is virtually indistinguishable from what Keir Starmer said. Yet centrists on social media accepted as sensible politics when Keir Starmer does it, as opposed to the obvious dog whistle politics it is. Um, Let's look at some more of Starmer's exchange. We were able to set out at our conference just a few weeks ago in Liverpool how many more people, 7,500 new people, recruit into and train into the health service from here, training people in. Uh, And we we explained how we would cost that. Well, certainly the the experience in Scotland seems to be that people just aren't applying to train. There are places that are vacant that are being funded by the Scottish government for midwifery and nursing that can't be filled because people just don't want to join the NHS. Well, so we can't get them from here. Where do we get them from? Well, we certainly need to drive those numbers across um, the whole of the United Kingdom. And those numbers can go up, and I think they should go up. And we need funded places to drive them up. But of course, one of the reasons that um, the NHS is struggling is because it's such hard work. The conditions are so hard because the NHS has been run down. My wife works in the NHS, so this is a this is a daily conversation about how tough it is in her hospital. It's really tough conditions. We need a long-term plan. All we get... What does she tell short... you the problem with the NHS is? What does she think the solution is? We haven't got enough people. We haven't got enough people. But you don't want to use neglected. immigration as a solution for that? Well, I think that we should be training people in this country. I think we should be training people in this country. Again, we should, we should actually be training more people in this country. He is right. But personally, I think if you were ever speaking about the NHS and you were ever speaking about migration, as I say, I do think there is a structural point to be made, which is that we are a very rich country. It's pretty rich that we are piggybacking off the education systems of much poorer countries. It's, you know, it's a bit, bit of a scabby thing to do as a, as a country and as a government. But unless you foreground any discussion of that kind by saying, we are so grateful for every single person that works in the NHS, especially if you have come here to work in the NHS, you keep this going. You know, unless that's the first thing you say, then I just don't think you get to say the rest. And framing this problem, which is about Britain being cheap and Britain not you know, letting enough people study medicine. There are lots of people who want to study medicine. Lots of British people, actually, I think at the moment are going to Eastern Europe to study medicine because they're not getting accepted in this country. And that's because there is a cap imposed by the government to save money. Really, really outrageous. But unless you, you know, you frame that as a problem with training, as opposed to saying there are too many foreigners in the NHS, you know, I talk on the show all the time about how you've got people working on the front line in public services. Not only are they being pushed to the brink with the hours they're working, for poor pay, but they're also seeing that the service they're delivering is not the high quality they want to be giving because the system is at collapse. If you say anything which can, I think the most obvious interpretation really of what Starmer said there is that he's quite 
I mean, it sounded unappreciative, didn't it, of, of people from other countries working in the NHS. There should be less of them. I mean, it's a bit of an offensive thing to do. I mean, Ash, what did you make of, of Starmer's intervention there? There's two ways in which you can make that point. The first way in which you can make the point, and it's a way in which I would totally agree with him, is you go, look, we've got an NHS staffing crisis. You've got all these vacancies which can't be filled. and We've got a totally arbitrary cap on the number of medical students. We've got, you know, limits on the bursaries. And that, you know, essentially establishes a chokehold on, on how many people can be trained in this country to fill those gaps. If he said that, I would have absolutely no problem with it whatsoever. But when you begin the conversation, not about, okay, so what are the NHS's staffing needs and what do we do about it? But it's a conversation which is about Labour wanting to appear tough on migration, tough on asylum seekers, because those are things which have been in the news for the last couple of weeks. And you go, I actually think we've got too many migrants working in the NHS. Even though you can justify it, justify saying that thing by making a point that I think that very few people would have a problem with. What it's actually trying to do is play into, as you said, dog whistle politics. What it's trying to do is say, well, look, I agree that actually foreigners are coming here, taking jobs that should be going to hardworking Brits and just stopping a little bit short of a kind of outright British jobs for British workers type position. I think it's especially disgusting, quite frankly, to play that game with migrant NHS workers. Because let me tell you, if all of them left tomorrow, if every migrant porter, healthcare assistant, nurse, doctor left tomorrow, the NHS would collapse. It would just totally collapse. And indeed, if we started seeing disruption to the flow of migration, of staff coming here uh, to work in the NHS, the NHS would be in an even worse state than it already is now. So I think there's a level of ingratitude. I also think that after a pandemic in which we know that Black and Asian minority ethnic workers in the NHS were the ones who are most likely to become seriously ill and, and indeed die from COVID contracted at work. I think it's just really awful to play that kind of you know, xenophobic dog whistle politics with NHS stuff. And I think it's really low of Keir Starmer because it's cynically couched in a in a policy which you, you wouldn't disagree with to try and fend off criticisms from, you know, the the social democratic centre and the liberals, but also, you know, flash a little bit of ankle at the Farageists. Because he was asked a question about migration. So you could say, you know, if you're a Starmer fan, look, you know, yeah, you're you're making the point you could make about the NHS, but he was asked about migration numbers, so obviously he's going to give a migration answer. But I do also think there is a there is a way of making his point which would actually challenge the government and challenge the government's narrative on migration, which is to say, look, the Tory government for the, for the past 12 years said they're going to bring migration numbers down, but we need really high migration in this country, and the reason we absolutely need it is because they're not training people. You know, then you then it's then it's clear there where the root of this issue comes from. I mean, I'm more than happy for lots of people from lots of different countries to work in the NHS, absolutely. But I do think it's it's not particularly good policy that we poach NHS workers from other countries, other poorer countries, right? But I think Keir Starmer could make that point. You know, In this country, we always have this narrative that's sort of like, we're so generous to migrants. Migrants come here and, and we let them work here. How, how bloody nice of us to let them work here. But actually what goes on when it comes to doctors and nurses, etc., is we very much actively go out to poorer countries and say, guys, why don't you come work for us? Why don't you come work in Britain? Because of you know the history of colonialism and exchange rates, you'll get paid much more here. Thank you to your government for giving you seven years of training, but why don't you just come over here, right? It, it, so I think it can completely reframe that that argument. It's sort of like we're being so generous by allowing them to work here to say, like, no, we we actively recruit these people because we can't staff our own NHS in this country, right? I think if Keir Starmer framed it like that, it would have been less offensive to so many people. We got a little bit more on this story. Keir Starmer was correct to point out that poor pay and poor working conditions are the principal cause of the recruitment crisis in the NHS. And that's the context in which the Royal College of Nurses have voted for their first ever nationwide strike. Donna Hales is a specialist nurse and labour counsellor, and she explained why she thinks industrial action is necessary. 
Absolutely. And that's probably the key essence to this now. You know, nurses overall in the last 12 years have lost about a third of their pay because they've had below inflation pay rises. So that has had an impact on things. However, you know, what we're really looking at is recruiting and retaining staff. And those targets that have been set have been repeatedly missed. We can't recruit and retain staff enough. At the moment, because of pay and because of poor working conditions, one in three nurses are, are planning to leave. Now, when we talk about poor working conditions we're talking about areas that are very grossly understaffed we're talking about staff having to work extra hours we're talking about staff having to go without breaks some staff having to have annual leave cancelled and also things like development and training are affected because you know if you've not got enough staff in your area okay. and you want well, to let's do a course, that so if the strike does go ahead, emergency care and essential care will still be provided, but the right-wing press are already pitting NHS staff against patients. So the Times published this leader on potential strike action. The Times view on the possibility of a nurses' strike, safety first. Nurses are preparing for industrial action, but a strike could put patients at risk. And this was the Telegraph. Nurses' strike will test the public's patience. It would be far better if the Royal College of Nurses and the government got together to work out a viable future for the NHS before it collapses. And those, that was the Telegraph view and the Times view. So this is written by their editorial boards. And the Telegraph column goes on to say this, a strike over pay at a time when the NHS is in crisis caused partly by staff shortages would be unconscionable. The system is struggling with a barely believable backlog of 7 million cases, which will just worsen if treatments have to be cancelled because of a lack of nurses. Now, what crocodile tears, what disgusting crocodile tears from the Telegraph there? Oh, it would be unconscionable when we've got a staffing crisis for people to go uh, to go on strike. Imagine the patients already have a difficult enough time already. Well, why do patients have a difficult enough time already, right? It's because the Telegraph and the Times have backed for 12 years governments who have stripped those services of funding. And uh, the reason we have a staff shortage is because we don't pay staff enough. What are people striking for? A bit more pay, better conditions. So now you have this situation where nurses are fighting for the only thing that's actually going to rescue the NHS, which is to say, pay us properly, give us proper conditions. Then less of us will leave the industry. Then more people will join the industry, right? They're saying that and they're taking the only action they can to make that happen, which is a strike. And the Telegraph, the Times, the people who have backed the people who have decimated the NHS for 12 years now have the cheek to say, oh, Oh, you, you can't really do that, can you? Especially not when we've got a, a shortage of staff. We've got a shortage of staff because of you guys. When I say you guys, I'm talking about the Telegraph and the Times, right? The working conditions of the people who wrote these leader columns, you know, these opinions from the Times and the Telegraph, is just going to be infinitely easier than any single person working in the NHS. And those people go on strike because they've had real terms pay cuts over the past 12 years, and they're expected to work unconscionable hours. And as I say, have the trauma of providing not particularly a service, which isn't great, because the health service is collapsing. And then these people like on their laptops, you know, in in nice homes in London, it's like, oh, I think you should think of the patients. Why didn't you think of the patients when you back the Tories every election in the past 20 years? Ash, I want your comments on... um, this strike and these newspapers. I'm getting too angry about these newspapers, so I'm going to hand over to you. No, look, I thought you had it bang on, which is that there's like a level of hypocrisy there of going like, look, we keep supporting the party who've been hacking your working conditions to bits, so that doesn't mean that you should do anything about it. I think that's really irresponsible. You know, it's... it's so beyond hypocritical. It just, it's just, it's galling. I mean... What's interesting to me is that these are really similar arguments that you saw being rolled out around the time of the junior doctor's strike, which I think must have been 2014, 2015. And one of the things that was coming out again and again in the press and again and again from politicians is if junior doctors go on strike now, you're putting um, you know, patient safety at risk. The argument being made by the junior doctors at the time is, look, the conditions that we have to work in where we're being overstretched, where, you know, um, medics to ICU patients, that ratio is being cut down, where you have doctors being given responsibilities which are way above their pay grade and way above their experience level. These are all things which are endangering patients on a day-to-day basis, except the right-wing press don't pay attention to that, or when they do pay attention to that, is to try and make an argument that we should 
cut the NHS even further or that it's somehow a failing model. But they do pay attention when healthcare workers say, well, look, we're going to, we've tried everything else. Like, you know, we've tried lobbying, we've tried entering into, you know, negotiations with, you know, various health secretaries and absolutely nothing's happened. So what we're going to do is use the one power that we have as workers, which, which is to withdraw our labor. And then suddenly everyone's clutching at their pearls. And I think this is to go back to the point about, you know, if you're going to complain about patient safety, you better not have voted conservative in every election for the past 12 years. The conditions that we're seeing now in terms of a beds crisis, where you've got patients dying in ambulances outside of hospitals, where you've got patients languishing in hallways because there's not space on the wards, where you've got people waiting really long times for ambulances to come and reach them when they're experiencing a medical emergency. That is the day-to-day risk to patient safety, which has been imposed not by anybody going on strike, but 12 years of NHS mismanagement and funding cuts. It's also, I mean, the clue is in all these articles, oh, well, there's 7 million people on waiting lists, so they shouldn't do it. There's there's already a staff shortage, so they shouldn't do it. Well, maybe if these things are already happening, then the nurses going on strike isn't the problem. Maybe the problem is something else. Right? Maybe that's what you should have a conversation about. Well, let's go to our final story. Gavin Williamson is a Tory MP who fails a lot, but by some kind of miracle, only ever upwards. In 2019, he was fired as Theresa May's defence secretary. That was after being accused of leaking information from the National Security Council to the press. Yet less than three months later, with Boris Johnson then in charge, he was put in charge of our kids' education. In that role, he failed to get laptops to kids during lockdown. He opened schools for one single day at the height of the pandemic before closing them again. And he was ultimately sacked after causing a complete fiasco over A-level results. Under his watch, algorithmic marking resulted in poorer marks for state school pupils than their teachers had projected and much better marks for those at private schools. And yet, somehow, Gavin Williamson ended up with a knighthood. And now, with Rishi Sunak in charge, Sir Gavin has found himself once again on the front line of politics as a minister without portfolio. Surprise, surprise, within a month of that appointment, Williamson has found himself again in hot water. That's because, besides being useless, Williamson is a bit of a bully too. The former chief whip, Wendy Morton, has made a formal complaint against him, accusing Williamson of sending abusive and bullying messages to her. And the WhatsApp chats have been leaked. The first set of messages relates to the Queen's funeral. Williamson, at the time, just a random backbencher MP, was pretty annoyed that he hadn't bagged an invitation. In what you're about to see, PC stands for Privy Councillor. It's a title that goes to all previous cabinet members, amongst others, other people as well, so leader of the opposition, etc. There are currently 743 members of the Privy Council, so it's not that special. Williamson says, think very poor how Privy Councillors who aren't favoured have been excluded from the funeral, very poor, and sends a clear message. And Wendy Morton replies, that is not the case, Gavin. He says, well, certainly looks it, which is very shit, and perception becomes reality. Also, don't forget, I know how this works, so don't puss me about. And she says, as I said above, that's simply not the case, Gavin. The number of places allocated was extremely limited. Gavin didn't like that. He says, it's very clear how you are going to treat a number of us, which is very stupid. And you are showing F all interest in pulling things together. Don't bother asking anything from me. I don't know what you want to ask from the guy. He's not particularly, you know, he can't, he can't follow through on anything. Anyway. He then goes on, also this shows exactly how you have rigged. It is disgusting you are using her death to punish people who are just supportive. Absolutely disgusting. <laughs> this is Gavin Williamson making the Queen's death about himself. Gavin, again, this is not the case whatsoever. Well, let's see how many more times you F us all over. There is a price for everything. <laughs> now, <laughs> there is a price for everything. That's the most sort of like threatening me. What does that even mean? The second conversation happened when Williamson decided not to turn up for a Commons vote. So Wendy Morton says, Morning, Gavin. I hear from your whip. You are probably not voting this evening. Is there a problem? We are on a free line whip. Thanks. And Williamson responds, Thank you for the patronising and condescending tone. You're welcome to come and see me and explain. Best wishes. He goes on, You do know you can speak to people in your job. You don't just text them. And I think that's pointed there because Gavin Williamson used to have her job. Um, Wendy Morton then replies, there is absolutely no need for you to take this tone, Gavin. I am trying to help. 
And he says, how are you? And she says, I'm fine. <laughs> then, then, he, then he responds, no, how are you helping? But very glad you are fine. Look at my voting record. Step back and think how you are dealing with people and then maybe talk to people. I am currently with my poorly dog at the vets. So I will give you some time to reflect on how you are dealing and treating people. And then she says, I need no lecture from you, Gavin. When I ask a simple question, I will call you later. She seems very, she has a lot of self-control, I think, in that exchange. An entertaining exchange in a way. Apparently, though, you know, this is a serious topic as well because Williamson has form when it comes to being particularly aggressive um, with women colleagues. A Tory minister has now spoken to the Times about her experience with Williamson. And the paper reports this. The Tory MP, who told the Conservative Party at the weekend that she was willing to discuss the matter, said that Williamson had called her into his office when he was chief whip in 2016. At the time, she was campaigning on an issue that was causing the government difficulty. During the meeting, Williamson is said to have raised a sensitive issue about her private life, which she interpreted as a tacit threat. Allies of Williamson denied that he had been trying to silence the MP and said he had raised the issue in a pastoral capacity. <laughs> I was just genuinely interested this particularly embarrassing fact about her might be something she'd like to talk to me about. Nothing cynical or sinister or threatening going on there, although there is a price for everything. I just want to show you a photo now. So this shows Williamson, who had previously been Chief Whip himself, posing with a bullwhip on his desk. Perched across it is a little red book. Now, it was widely interpreted as a message to Tory MPs after the A-level disaster. I know your secrets, so you'd better say stay on side or, or not mock me relentlessly in public. Now, Rishi Sunak has condemned Williamson's messages, calling them, quote, not acceptable. Very tough words there from Sunak. He has also said this, though. He, he quote, has full confidence in the minister, um, which makes you wonder, what does Williamson have on Sunak? What could, um, I suppose that's my question for you, Ash. Red book, whip. What would happen to Rishi Sunak if he kicked Williamson out of his cabinet? Oh, oh, I know. Is it that he's really five foot two? Is it, is it that he, he wears lifts in his shoes? Is it that he used to work for Willy Wonka and he oversaw the horrendous deaths of, I think, three or four children because of lax workplace safety rules. Mm. Um, these Before are we join the EU, maybe. Dark secrets. Maybe. Working time maybe. directive and all that weren't in place in the good old days. <laughs> when they were like, oh, how do we solve the problem of a girl who's swollen up to look like a blueberry? I guess we have to put her in a juicing machine. Chocolate, didn't even chocolate was cheaper back then. Chocolate was cheaper. Um, they should have had guardrails by the Chocolate River, I maintain. I mean, what what I find really funny about this news story, um, other than the fact that Gavin Williamson has sort of molded himself on a cartoon villain and is also not quite executing it in a way which makes you think he's a competent villain. He's kind of more like Dick Dastardly. So he's like, ah, I'll win the wacky races one of these days. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Like, you know what I mean? He just sort of seems like he's um, he's kind of trying to be menacing and, and, and not quite landing it. But the other thing which I find really funny is the fact that this is now all coming out and you've got all you know, sorts of lobby journalists now going, oh my God, this is absolutely awful. Did you know that the whipping operation in political parties was based on bullying? And, and of course they all knew that the whipping operation was based on bullying. And when it comes to things like helping Gavin Williamson pose with, you know, a red book and a bullwhip on his desk, they're actually quite happy to participate in some of those dark arts themselves, like they're political operators rather than a conduit for information to the public. And I think what's happened now is that after Liz Truss got defenestrated within a single menstrual cycle, the lobby are like, hang on, we can kind of determine who's in and who's out. And Gavin Williamson, he's out. These kinds of, of, of behaviors of blackmailed using embarrassing uh, personal details, abusive language, this is nothing new when it comes to whipping operation. I mean, I remember, I think it was in an article by John McTurnan, he was talking about in Tony Blair's first term in power, a junior minister was walking around the parliamentary estate and one of the whips was walking past him grabbed him by the bollocks and like kind of had him up against the walls and twisted and was like, you've not done anything to upset me, son. So just imagine what I'll do if you ever cross me. 
And this was something which was written up in a way which is kind of like, oh, what a titillating anecdote. Whereas I'd be like, that's not okay behavior in a workplace. Like that's, that's objectively insane. So for me, the issue is less, is Gavin Williamson a very nasty person? I mean, obviously he is. Otherwise he would never have been chief whip. It's actually, are there going to be standards which are enforced across the board so you actually try and change the culture of Westminster for the better or is it merely going to be whoever finds themselves on the outside who's no longer considered one of us for whatever reason so suddenly they're the one being pulled up for something which everyone knew about before and is still going on I just want to end by going back to the best bit of, uh, I wholly agree with you, by the way, like the, I find the faux sanctimony about this just a bit ridiculous. Um, let's go back to the best part of this exchange, though, because I want to know what you think about Wendy Morton. I I'm sure her voting record is terrible, but she's kind of, maybe she's kind of funny. Wendy Morton, there is absolutely no need for you to take this tone, Gavin. I've tried to help. <laughs> How are you? I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> like, I kind of relate, I, I kind of rate that. Do we like her? But obviously, go, no, I know, I, I know how, you, know how are you helping, but very glad you are fine. Is she someone with odd social skills or is that a joke? Was that a knowing joke? I don't know. What's your, what's your read on that? I don't, I don't know because maybe on the one hand, it's a bit like, you know, when my mum texts me, she's the only person who removes all of the vowels from every word because she thinks that's text speak. So like maybe <laughs> it's just something of like, you know, like you're of a certain age and so some of the kind of social nuances of texting have kind of passed you by. So, you know, she's like, oh, you know, maybe he's asking how I am. So maybe it's that. or there is just a way in which you can like wind someone up by playing dumb and just keeping it like very sweetness and light. And maybe she's doing that. I don't know enough about Wendy Morton and what she's like as either a chief whip, a political operator or a person to know which of it is likely to be. But when I read that, I was <laughs> wheezing. I was absolutely wheezing. I really want to construct an opportunity where I get to use that line. I'm not sure it's, it's going to be quite complex to sort of construct construct that scenario but something to to aim for ash thank you so much for joining me this evening thanks for having me and um, we'll be back on wednesday at 7 p.m you've been watching tisky sour on navarro media good night this broadcast is brought to you by navarro media go to navarro slash support